everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. A few weeks back, I did a podcast on Jackson, Mississippi and their water crisis. And I added this is some analysis that, that I had done, uh, referencing some work that Urban 3 had done regarding some of the systematic problems with the suburban experiment that were making Jackson, particularly downtown, the core of Jackson, particularly vulnerable, particularly fragile. I talked in that podcast about some of the media narratives that, in my opinion, have oversimplified, and by oversimplified, really distracted us from the core causes of this problem, causes that are not only systematic within Jackson, but are ubiquitous for all cities across North America post-World War II. I got a lot of positive feedback on that, so let me not discount that. But there were a number of you uh, on Twitter, <laughs> in other places, who were upset with me or got upset with me for what was our conversation or the, the way that I talked about race in that. I, just to kind of remind everybody, uh, said, you know, using kind of the definition of, of systematic racism that I understand and, and in a sense concur with the idea that programs that have a racist outcome are themselves racist. And I look at Jackson, Mississippi, and there's no doubt that what has happened there is having a racist outcome. And I'm, you know, fine calling that racist. But what I drew issue with or what I took issue with is the kind of oversimplification of the problems in Jackson or the cause of this racist outcome being some type of, uh, of, of racial injustice. White flight is the term that's often thrown around. And I, I've pointed out here a few times, and I, I know it's a difficult conversation. It's very strange to me. It's always been strange to me to hear people describe a pattern of development as white flight that I experience and that I have, have seen, and, and I think we all, if we step back, look, exists in places where there is high levels of racial tension and division, as well as in places where there is, is no racial tension or division. I, I joke here sometimes, you know, in my little hometown, we have lots of diversity. We have Norwegians and, and Swedes and Germans alike. We still have, you know, what would, without looking at race, be called white flight. We have the same exact development patterns without uh, any real racial divide. One of the people who had uh, wanted to talk to me about this and said, Chuck, I, I think you're missing something, was one of our members, a woman named Amanda Lanata. Amanda contacted me and said, you know, could we talk about this? Like, I, I think you're missing something here. And... I wanted to have this conversation. I wanted to have it in a way where I could learn something. I recorded it with her permission. I'm going to play it here with her permission. I will say from the outset, Amanda and I are two white people talking about race in Jackson, Mississippi, a city that I don't live in and have only briefly experienced. Amanda has lived there for some time and, and has a more intimate knowledge, and she'll explain that in the podcast. So I, I acknowledge the shortcomings, but I played this show for a few people um, who all said, this is really important. And the way that you two discuss this is an important dialogue, an important conversation, and we should release it for, for that reason. 
going to acknowledge up front my own shortcomings, my own limitations. I ask you to be generous with me, be extra generous with Amanda, because she's literally trying to have a conversation with me and, and, you know, teach me something. And so with that, I want to, uh, cue up this podcast. What you're going to hear now is uh, Amanda and I having a a Zoom chat uh, to talk about Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, to some degree, the racial issues that have affected their water system. Uh, Welcome your feedback. Uh, Welcome further conversation here. I I think, you know, being generous with each other is really important. Uh, I think also dialogue here is really important. So please, in that spirit, enjoy the rest of the show and feel free to get a hold of me. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Okay, (laughs) let's start with this. Where are you from originally? I'm from the Baton Rouge area in South Louisiana. That's where I grew up. But I moved to Jackson, Mississippi to go to college in 2005. And I graduated uh, from Bellhaven College in 2009, then began working for the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, where I, where I was with them for another nine years. So that's how I came to Jackson, uh, was for college, and then ended up staying for a long time. What did you go to school for? I mean, how, how was this transition to the archives? My majored in history. The Department of Archives and History was definitely on my radar because it, it's kind of hard to get a job in the history field. It is. My <laughs> wife's minor is in history and who's always like, what? I get it. And so I, I started volunteering with them my senior year because I kind of had narrowed narrowed it down really to them. So that was kind of the only place that I wanted to go work with. And it was 2009. It was the Great Recession. There was a state hiring freeze. So when I graduated, the freeze was still in effect. So I just kept volunteering. And it wasn't until the fall that I started working there. Actually, as a receptionist, I was, you know, I was desperate. It was the Great Recession. Uh, but that job ended up being really good for me because I'm an introvert and I had to answer the phone. So I had to talk to people a lot and I just met lots of different folks. And it really set me up really well as I kind of moved up in my career there. Okay. Talk about the project you worked on then at the archives. I had not heard of this. Talk about the museum and what your role in that was. Yeah. So in my role, uh, I was the assistant to the executive director of the agency which basically meant special projects. And our biggest project while I was there was the construction of the two Mississippi museums, which was the the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and the Museum of Mississippi History. So that started in about 2011 was when we got the initial funding and they opened in December of 2017 for Mississippi's Bicentennial. And it, for me, it, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity because it's really rare that you build one new museum, let alone two at the same time. So uh, it was very stressful towards the end. Um, the president came to our grand opening uh, ceremony, which was a big deal. Um, Wait a sec. The president, president. The president of the United States. Yes. Yeah. Came. <laughs> 
and you're fresh out of college doing this. This is really exciting. That's a whole nother story. Yeah. And it, it, we knew he had been invited, but it wasn't confirmed until I think four days before the event. So yeah, that kind of changes the tenor of your event, doesn't it? That was a stressful time, but it, you know, it was a great celebration, (laughs) a great celebration for Mississippi. Talk about your role in this then. You mentioned doing interviews and sitting for uh, a lot of discussions and how it was a personally a journey. We're going to talk about Jackson. We're going to talk about their water crisis. And we're going to talk a little bit about the article that I wrote. I'm a Minnesotan. We're the other side of the Mississippi River. <laughs> we're the right. other end. Literally, <laughs> the Mississippi River is half a mile that way. And you can... Uh, throw a softball across it. That's how narrow it is up here. We can go a couple hours north and you can walk across it. That's where the headwaters are up in Itasca. It's the other end. And, you know, we're all humans, but uh, the culture is very different here than it is there. And so just as 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 background, because I know we're going to talk about the water crisis, take us a little bit through what your experience was interviewing people and putting together exhibits and going through uh, the process of opening this museum? Well, let me first acknowledge, you know, I'm a white Southern woman. So I grew up in South Louisiana. We did not really learn about civil rights in school. Um, And so I studied uh, history, but then coming into this project, uh, I was a junior staff member, you know, I was really just starting out in my career and I was, I felt so lucky to be asked to be on the committee. And I was, frankly, I was asked to just take notes um, because they knew my, the director at the time knew this was a historic project. So I was just thrilled to be in the room and gradually my role in the project expanded as time went on. And yeah, so I ended up working on the exhibits for the museum and the audiovisual materials, the films that were played. So sitting with the civil rights veterans, the family members, the descendants, um, listening to their stories, going over the material with them. And there was a trust that had to be built there was very special. And I'll always, always cherish those moments because as I told you, it became a very personal journey for me. And I, let me tell the story of one of the, my first experiences working on the project. Our director had our staff committee do a racial reconciliation workshop. This was back in 2011, 2012. So I'm sitting there, you know, listening to my black colleagues talk about their experiences We're talking about white privilege, which back in that time, like now it's kind of in the culture. People know what that is. But back then, like I had never heard of that before. So listening to their stories kind of was the beginning of that journey of me being like, wow, this is totally different from my experience growing up. And I also remember an early, early public meeting that we had with the architects. And they asked some of the staff members to just help you know, run the meeting and assist or whatever. So I volunteered to go and I'll never forget. A gentleman got up and he said, will all the archives and history staff members please stand up? So we all stood up and he was like, y'all are all white. And I was so embarrassed. I was, you know, just so taken aback and kind of upset because I knew like we had black 
staff members working on the project, but it was a Saturday, so they just weren't able to come. But that speaks to the root of, in Mississippi, the distrust that still exists, especially towards the state government. So us as a state agency, it was very complex to navigate that, knowing that we were the ones charged by the legislature with building this museum and creating the exhibits. And the resounding message from the Black community at all of those public meetings was tell the truth because they were concerned that it would be whitewashed, that it would be glossed over, that it wouldn't be accurate. So I feel like we took that charge very seriously. I'm very proud of the what we produced. But yeah, so sitting with the family members as I was working on the exhibits was just, it was hard at times. And we spent we spent hours and hours, lots of time trying to get it right and going back and forth on revisions. I remember sitting with the Evers family. Medgar Evers was the field secretary for the NAACP for Mississippi for about nine years until he was assassinated in 1963 in Jackson. He was shot in the driveway of his home while his family was inside. And so he's a you know legend of the Mississippi movement. And we had a film piece about his life and his work. So I remember sitting with his daughter, Miss Rena Evers Everett, for several hours going over the script and going over her comments. And, you know, like I said, there was a trust that had to be built there where they felt comfortable sharing how they truly felt. But I just kept telling her over and over, we want this to be right. You know, we want this to be right for your dad. So I still cry whenever I see that film piece just because it is so powerful. And I have tremendous respect for the Evers family, for Mrs. Murley Evers, who is his widow. But yeah, those experiences were just so powerful for me personally and just listening, getting some level of understanding, because obviously I can never truly understand empathy. It was so humbling and seeing that, you know, we have all this history in the civil rights era, Jim Crow segregation, going back to slavery, but it still affects us today. The struggle is still continuing. And I feel like now in our country, there's more of an understanding of those issues. But for me, it was just transformative to work on that project. You and I are chatting because I wrote this piece about Jackson's water system. And you're certainly not the only person who reached out to me afterwards and said, um, <laughs> hey, there's more to this story. Talk a little bit about the water system itself, because you lived in Jackson and experienced this. And I think one of the interesting things to me as I was trying to piece together what was going on was to go back before the the kind of current crisis came to a head and read and listen to YouTube videos from two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, where this has just been an ongoing problem. I, I listened to an extended interview of one restaurant owner who's trying to keep a restaurant running when one day you have water and the next day you don't. Talk a little bit about living through this. Yeah, I lived in Jackson, in the central part of the city, uh, which was kind of unusual. 
but I was always very proud to be a Jackson resident. So I lived in the Bellhaven neighborhood, which is just a few miles from downtown. It was the first streetcar suburb of Jackson. Jackson is known for the streets being terrible and the water. So I always kept a few big jugs of water in the house just because you didn't know what might happen. I remember in 2010, there was a hard freeze and a bunch of water mains burst all over the city and we were boiling water for, I think, 10 days. Some folks had no water at all. You're totally right that this has been an ongoing thing really for decades. And it's been an ongoing discussion in the city about what do we do about it? And there was kind of a sense that the politicians kept kicking the can down the road. And, you know, I always wondered like about the maintenance issue, which of course now that I know about the strong towns approach, it's like, well, yeah, we need to like every year we need, we should budget to replace so many linear feet of pipe and start with the oldest parts of the city. Cause parts of the city, from my understanding, still had the original like terracotta pipes from a hundred years ago. So yeah, it's absolutely been an ongoing thing. I remember there's an EPA consent decree already in existence for Jackson related to stormwater and wastewater because every time it would rain really hard, the wastewater would get dumped into the Pearl River. So that's been in place probably over 10 years now. And there was the drama related to the Simmons contract to replace the water meters. So it's just been an ongoing thing. And like I said, I've been gone. Uh, I'm, I came back home to Louisiana in 2018. So I've been gone for a couple of years. But yeah, it's nothing new. And the streets are a problem. Well, partly because of the Yazoo clay, which is the soil there, which clay expands and contracts when it gets wet. But apparently Yazoo clay is even worse. So that's part of the culprit. But they also have to constantly dig up the streets to fix the water pipes. Um, so they're constantly being patched. And you, so you can't really keep up with your streets when you're constantly having to dig them up. Let me walk through a little bit of my article on Jackson's water system or my insight on Jackson's water system. And then I want to give you an opportunity to talk about why there's more to the story, why there are other other things that we should think about. Part of my reaction, and I did a podcast on this, people who are listening to this podcast will certainly, uh, if you go back a few episodes, will be able to hear what I said. Part of my reaction was to the kind of national imposition of these narratives and how I thought it overlooked the actual issue at stake. And, you know, this is very common. You know, we live in this post-World War II suburbanization era, and it seems very normal to all of us. And so it's easy for us to write narratives on top of that, assuming that that is the normality. And I'm, I'm always trying to get people to break through and, and realize how big of an experiment this is. My statement was, and I, I think I said this in the podcast ex- specifically, if, if you took race out of the conversation, like everybody was white, there was no racial issues. There was, we had no racial issues at all in the entire world. Everybody in the world was one race we would still be having these problems in Jackson 
because of the way we chose to invest in the Jackson region. We chose to expand outward, denude and decouple the success of the core from everything else. Uh, we we drove down the tax base, the revenue, and expanded the costs exponentially. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but Josh McCarty from Urban3 put it together where Jackson has increased its population by 6%, but its land area by, what was it, six times or three? I think it was 300% or something. 300%. Yeah, it was three times. And so, you you know, the math on that doesn't work regardless of the race. And beyond that, I mean, my pushback to the national narrative was, if we want to make this exclusively about race, or if we want to say this is all, the cause of this is racism, we're actually going to miss out on something important. You're nodding. So I, I don't think we necessarily disagree on that in any way, but you and, and a handful of other people have said, yes, but there is something really important here. And I think pausing to understand what that is or to recognize that is, is good. Let me give you some room to talk about what that is that's missing. And then I'm sure I'll have more questions or more things I want to highlight, but I, I want to just let you talk about from your perspective, what are the complexities that I just, or someone just reading my stuff wouldn't grasp? Yeah. And absolutely. I, I totally agree with you on the root problem, obviously. I mean, that map from Urban 3 really illustrated that. But yes, but to me, the, the racial issues affect how the people and the parties can work together or not. And we saw that played out in the media with the governor and the mayor. And it just seemed like you know, there was kind of a tension or feud or I, I don't know what that gets back to is the racial complexities, in my opinion. Um, Jackson is 80 percent black and Democrat. The state government is mostly white and very conservative Republican. There's just a sense in Jackson that I always had that people had given up on the city. Because white flight, of course, started kind of with integration in the 60s, and it's only accelerated since then. Jackson Public Schools is 99% Black. All of the white kids in city limits go to private school. And it's interesting because of the physical location, the white flight initially kind of was still within city limits, but just farther out. But as in the last 20 or 30 years, it's gone even farther out to the neighboring counties. So you have Madison to the north and then in Rankin County to the east. You know, that's that tax base that has left. So Jackson is being crunched by, you know, the tax base leaving, but all their maintenance obligations coming due. This is that rolling decline that we talk about right. a lot, where it is the equivalent of slash and burn agriculture and from a development right. pattern standpoint. Yeah. Right. But because of the, the white flight, there's not a sense of ownership in the city because they literally live in different counties, not, not only just different cities, but different counties. And just a lot of folks commute in because Jackson is still the employment center with state government three major hospitals, one of which is the 
uh, teaching hospital. Anyway, so there's lots of commuters coming in and out. But there's this sense that, oh, Jackson is, you know, terrible and we're just getting the heck out of Dodge. But I always felt that the capital region is going to sink or swim based on how Jackson fared. So I felt like even if you live out in one of the suburbs, we all we need to work together because state government is not moving. <laughs> They've talked about it, <laughs> but it's, you know, the seat of state government is not going to move and neither is all these hospitals and the other places. My hope was always that the metro region, the capital region could work together around these issues. But because of the racial complexities and other complexities, it just never felt like we could get there. Like the airport is a case in point. So the Jackson Evers, named after Medgar Evers, um, the Jackson Evers International Airport is actually in, in Rankin County. The city bought that property, I think, in the 50s or the 60s. They purchased that land for the airport. But there's been this ongoing struggle by the government, by the, by the state government, by, I don't know if it's ranking county officials to take it over because of this sense that it was being mismanaged or whatever. So there's this real sense that Jackson can't handle its affairs. The city can't run the government, you know, it's falling apart with the water and, you know, I'm not there. So I can't say the it, this mayoral administration, if that's true or not. But I think to me, it comes down to the relationships. Uh, I heard someone say the other day that relationships move at the speed of trust. That's what I reference in my work with the museum. So I would love to see the governor and the mayor have a standing meeting once a month once a quarter to just sit down and talk about these issues because they're they're so linked because you have the state capitol and all the gov state government buildings that are in downtown. Um, so we have to work together. And there's really not a way forward unless we work together and start to build those relationships and build that trust. How much in your estimation is the power imbalance? I hear you saying things that are very I think commonsensical in you know the idea and and I'm I'm looking at this through my lens which I'm going to you know acknowledge as a is a Christian Catholic lens and it's very easy for me to hear you say things like we should we should work together this is all about relationships I think what I'm hearing you say is that there isn't the common sense of humanity and that that is the kind of urgency of resolving this is that there isn't a shared sense of the state is not in tune to the suffering of people within the city. Like that's not an, an urgent problem for them. And I, I want to probe deeper into that by just starting with what, what do you sense is the power imbalance? I mean, obviously one is the state government, one's the city. So without any race uh, component there, there is a power imbalance. Is it enhanced by, in your opinion, by the lack of humanity for one another? Is that is that a big part of what we're seeing here? Is there a sense that the state is is acting out of spite? Or what's your observation on this wish that there should be a standing meeting between the mayor and the governor? What, what, what would that resolve, right? I think it's a start. It's a starting place. And you have to start somewhere. And like I said, to me, it's 
it's obvious that those two executives need to be talking to each other. You know, in my Main Street communities, if there's a university in their town, the mayor and the university president often have a standing meeting. And you're like, well, yeah, that's a no brainer because their interests are so intertwined. So it's the same thing with the state government and Jackson and, you know, Governor Reeves referenced in some of the media that I read that he lives in Jackson. The governor's mansion is downtown. So he has some level of, you know, investment as a resident now. His water's got to not be working too. <laughs> right. I don't know if his was or not, but uh, anyway. No, it's all the same system. I'm sure he's having the same problems. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it's a place to start. And I would hope that that could happen at all levels of, of the two uh, governments, not just the executive. But again, it comes down to some of the stereotypes that are present. I remember the current mayor's father, Shokwe Lumumba Sr., was mayor when I was there. I didn't vote for him, but I grew to have tremendous respect for him because of what he did. And one of the things that he did was he put a ban on releasing mugshots to the media. And now I think that's becoming more common. So because those mugshots feed into our stereotypes, because often it's African-American young men, but they haven't been convicted of any crime. So when he did that, I was like, wow, I, I had never thought of it. But because of this journey that I was on, it made sense. But that's what's been steeped into our consciousness in the South for hundred years. The other thing Mayor Lumumba did was he uh, passed a 1% sales tax, which was a referendum. I guess we voted on it. The citizens voted the tax on ourselves and that uh, money was going to be dedicated to the infrastructure. So I kind of have lost track of was it actually used on the water system, but I, I it's my understanding that it was. Let me run this one by you, because one of the things that I've struggled with, and again, being from a, the most Northern state, except Alaska, and having a very different small town experience. One of the things that I have struggled with is that when we look at cities, and, and I'll give you two examples where I've been part of this conversation, Lafayette, Louisiana, which you know well, and uh, Memphis, Tennessee. In both instances, I remember in Memphis when we sat down with A.C. Wharton, the mayor at the time, and showed him the productivity map of the city. And I believe uh, Mayor Wharton was from South Memphis, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. But I remember talking to him specifically about South Memphis. Um, for those of you listening who don't know South Memphis, I mean, this is a ridiculously poor neighborhood. I, re I remember just being astounded by, it was a very successful business model for someone to get up in the morning, drive to Walmart, buy toilet paper and toothpaste and other essentials and drive back to the neighborhood and sell them out the back of your car. There's no grocery store. There's no, you know, corner store. There was, you know, th these were neighborhoods kind of devoid of investment. Yet, when we looked at the financial productivity of these neighborhoods and we looked at the tax flows in the community, 
even these poorest of poor neighborhoods were subsidizing the growth and development of the affluent places out on the edge. This is what we modeled in Lafayette, Louisiana. The poorest neighborhoods with the shotgun shacks and just, you know, in a real deep state of disrepair by neglect from the city were net tax profitable. They were actually, the city was actually collecting more tax revenue from these places than they were providing in services, assuming they provided the services, which they didn't. All that money was being redirected out to the far expanses of the community to subsidize the suburban style development out there. And so my advice to Memphis, and we see them actually, I think, leading in this nation on, on this insight, my advice to Lafayette, Louisiana, which has been less well heated, was stop subsidizing the stuff on the edge. Like you, you don't need them. What you need to do is redirect that prosperity back into the neighborhoods where you have it. And in a sense, I asked you this question about the power imbalance because I feel like there's a certain, what I got, and I, I don't know this in Jackson, and I'm going to ask you if this is there, but I did get this in Memphis and I did get this in Lafayette. There is a sense in Memphis, at, at least there was a decade ago, I think it's, it is fading now because they recognize this. There was a sense a decade ago in Memphis that we need the edge. We need the commuters. We need the white people from the edge to come in and spend money here. We need those affluent communities to want to be part of Memphis. We need them to come in and go to Beale Street and go to our basketball games and shop at our stores and go to the Bass Pro Shop. And, you know, we need them to do this. And my answer was, bullshit, you don't need them. They need you. And if you recognize that you have this immense value, you could actually start building off of a position of strength. What is the vibe that you got when you lived in Jackson? Was it the sense that the, you know, the quote unquote poor people of core Jackson needed the edge in order to be successful? Was that still the vibe there? Because I'm sure that was the vibe in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. You know, I mean, you wouldn't do the things they did if you didn't believe that. Do they still believe that today? Yeah, that's a really good question that I I had not considered before. And, and what comes to mind is all the commuters, they're the ones who needed those jobs that they were commuting to into the city. So I don't know. It seems like there was a sense that the the edge had given up on the city, but also recognized that they still needed it. So it was a little bit disjointed, I guess. But as far as what the city thought. Well, I'm watching Memphis right now. Memphis has a lawsuit with DeSoto County, which is a, a uh, Mississippi County that Memphis has been providing subsidized water service to for decades, right? And yeah, well, in, and in Memphis, they, I think decades ago, if we go back and give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, in terms of their thinking, their thinking was, we will provide this water service out here to DeSoto County that will give us more users 
more users means we can have a bigger system and then that will be good for Memphis residents. Um, we'll have a, a, a greater revenue stream. But the reality is, and we sat with them and helped them do the math on this, they're spending way more money than they're collecting providing this service to people in far-flung regions in Mississippi. That's the white suburb of South Haven. Right. No, it is. I, 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 I get it. In Memphis, they recognized this and they went to them and basically said, you're going to either pay the cost, which are like, we're not going to pay that much. And they're like, okay, that's fine with us. Like, don't don't pay that much. That doesn't make sense for you. We get it. Um, but it makes no sense for us to tax the poorest people of Memphis uh, and have their system fall apart and fail in order to provide you this service. And I feel like that's where I get a little bit... I'm not as attuned to the the racial element as you are or as other people who who live in this. But I am attuned to this idea that when the saviors from the outside come in and say there's a racial injustice here, which there is clearly, right? The result of this is that poor black people are living with a really bad water system. When we come in from the outside, the solution always seems to be, well, let's just try to prop up this core system. It is like, we're going to give you enough to keep you trapped in this system, but never enough to actually separate yourself from this sucking squid out on the outskirts of your city that that is robbing you, not just in a water system, but in a sewer system and roadways and your neighborhood construction and your private, that, that we're just going to give you enough to keep that system going, but not enough to actually cut the cord and break away from it. And I, I feel a little bit stuck, right? Because I said this on the podcast, Ibram X. Kendi has said, that racism really needs to be measured in outcomes. Um, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and maybe, you know, but a system that has good intentions that produces racist outcomes is a racist system. And I think when we look at Jackson today, whether we, you know, think that there's racist intentions or not, it is certainly producing a racist outcome. Dealing with that reality, it seems to me like if you're the mayor of Jackson, your first step is just to recognize how much you are subsidizing everybody around you and just stop doing that. And I, I don't know, am I, am I saying something that is I'm clueless about? Because I, I, I will acknowledge being clueless about, I don't live the racial dynamic in Jackson. I, I don't understand it deeply and intuitively like the people there do. I, I've not felt that the way that they've felt it. And some of the pushback I've gotten is that, well, you just don't get it. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I don't get it. But I also don't get it. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> it feels a little bit like an abusive spousal relationship, right? Where one party is the victim, one party is the 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 victimizer, but the victim feels like they are dependent on the victimizer and it's actually the other way around. Yeah. Well, I think, yes, your insight about Memphis is so prescient. And I think Jackson has to do what, I mean, you've talked about, which is a strategic retreat from some of these areas and how that would work. I don't know, but um, 
going back to the power imbalance question, I, I feel like it's more between the city and the state because the city, I think, feels like a little bit powerless and the state has all this money and influence and power and white privilege, I guess. So I think that may be more of the, the power imbalance that's at play. And from what I read in the media, there are some questions about whether Jackson was treated differently than other municipalities in the state in terms of having to jump through more hoops to access federal funds or whatever. It just percolates everywhere. But I feel like Jackson, the city was always looking for the state to help. Um, and part of that was because there was so much state property downtown that was tax exempt but the city was having to maintain the roads around there and the pipes and everything. So there was always strategy to get some kind of agreement to where the state could kick in some money, you know, recognizing that the, the city was incurring costs. So, so yeah, I would, I would say that seems to like what the power balance is, is getting to, but I don't know if I, did I answer your question? No, you did. It's, it's just, it's very hard because, if we were going to solve the strong towns problems, which you know that's that's what we're that's what we're about, so we're trying to do. There's this recognition right off the bat that we have built more than we can maintain, and once you recognize that, you can step back and actually do like a math problem and say, okay, if we're going to get rid of, let's say, half the roads we have, which half are those? And by default, what happens is that we get rid of the half that have no political power. Those are the ones that fall apart. And so if you go to a city like Lafayette, Louisiana, you can go out to the edge and you can drive the cul-de-sac streets that are losing them tons of money and the roads are in good condition. And you can go and drive the poor neighborhoods in the center of the city that are actually, you know, the property tax is actually covering the cost of the, the street and those streets are not being maintained. And you can see that from a, from a power standpoint, um, street maintenance is kind of a reflection of power, right? These neighborhoods are disenfranchised. They're not going to get, these neighborhoods are. Well, okay. We can look at that and say, that is a huge problem. But to me, the water system takes it to like a completely different level. And I'm, I'm going to say it this way. If you go out to the edge in your cul-de-sac streets and go underground and the water pipe is just fine, you know, it's, it's brand new PVC pipe. It doesn't leak. It provides adequate pressure, all this. And you go into the core of the city and it's a 150 year old pipe that is going to fall apart every time the ground shifts, it's going to have a new break in it. Here's the difference with the water system. The stuff on the edge generally cannot exist without the stuff in the center. But the stuff in the center can do just fine without the edge. In other words, we could just cut off the whole outskirts of the city and the center would be just fine. And so it does create this situation where we may not like each other, we may not get along, we may not have trust, we may not uh, respect each other in any way. But the balance of power shifts dramatically from, in a sense, geographically, the edge to the center. 
And it does it just by the physics of it. I mean, you can't get water to the edge without it going through the center, right? And yeah, if Jackson could recognize that, that would be huge. I think so. I feel like it it would be if Lafayette could recognize it. I mean, I stood in front of the leaders of Lafayette and explained this to them. I think that they grasp it. I feel like what is more important, though, is that the the people in the core of Lafayette grasp it. The people in the core of Jackson grasp it. And that's where I feel like the distraction of, well, I'll, I'll go to Flint, Michigan, where I watch Flint deal with this to a degree too. And the outside narrative that was imposed on that and that was kind of elevated within Flint was this idea that we need to make good on, you know, to the people of Flint. The people of Flint have been subjected to decades of racism, and we need to make good on this by going in and building the system, rebuilding the system that will prop up the edge of the city. That will, in my opinion, keep the core mired in kind of despondency, but allow the edge to continue to expand and flourish. And we wrap that investment in a racial narrative and in many ways, like feel good about having done it. But to me, it is again, going to just accentuate racist outcomes. If that is really what we're concerned about. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I, if the city could recognize the power that they have, because that's what you're saying is that we have, we feel like we have no power, but they actually have a lot of power. And yeah, I think recognizing that would help them so much. And and yeah, I think um, the Jackson water system, I believe, also services the, the suburbs and the other counties. I'm not sure. And I, I would be really curious if that is at a subsidized rate. But yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly on point. I watch in Memphis and in Memphis, you know, from the perspective of the suburb, they will say, we're paying the same rate as the city. So our rate is not subsidized. We're paying the same rate. But the reality is, is to get water out to the edge is vastly more expensive than not. So in terms of its cost, it is you know much more. It, if I'm shipping UPS packages across the street, it's a way different cost structure than if I'm shipping them you know to the, the South Pole. And that's because UPS has a different cost structure for delivering that. We all recognize that and understand that. The city has a different cost structure for delivering utilities 20 miles away than it does, you know, five blocks away. But that's not reflected at all in the way we talk about this or the way we deal with it. I get a little bit, I don't want to say frustrated. I mean, I want to have this conversation because I I feel like I'm missing something in terms of how I'm communicating this stuff. Because I get back so often on this Jackson piece, I had a number of people say, how can you say this is not just all racism? How can you say this isn't just the white legislature uh, sticking it to the the black city? And there's a part of me that's like, I, I get that there's that like underlying part to it. But even if you fix that, it doesn't solve this problem. Right? That's so true. And, and yeah, I guess it's like, 
what what you're asserting is the infrastructure that's the base layer that's the foundational issue is we built too much but layered on top of that is all of the racial issues so they're kind of linked together but truly the foundational issue is the suburban development pattern it's interesting because i think up here in in the north one of the ways that we're solving this problem the underlying infrastructure problem one of the ways we're solving this problem is through gentrification because and i'm i'm saying solving in air quotes i don't think it's a solution but one of the ways this problem this this problem is resolving itself is by having affluent people re-inhabit cities invest in the maintenance of the infrastructure and poorer people get shoved to the outskirts the big problem with that is that as I described in Memphis, the core does not need the edge. The edge needs the core. When you displace poor people to the edge, now they're going to have bad streets and failing water and be completely disconnected from you know, what is needed, what's going on in the affluent center. It's places like Jackson, though, and, and Lafayette and Memphis where that is not happening and I've kind of, I don't know how this resolves itself because in a sense you have, if we look at gentrification as being a bad in the sense that it displaces people, but a good in that it brings investment to places that it's needed, I feel like it's a problem that you can solve by not having the displacement, right? Like let's bring the investment in and keep more people in this neighborhood. Let's have the neighborhood grow incrementally, not in like large leaps that displace people. Um, let's keep people in the neighborhood. Exactly. But in Jackson, there's no resolution to this without investment. Right. And I, I think public investment in those distressed areas would be a signal that we care this place is valuable. It's so important to the finances of the city. And hopefully that investment, that public investment would maybe bring in some private investment. But meanwhile, the homeowners would see their property values maybe increase. So it would help with the generational wealth building that the Black community is trying to accomplish. Um, so to me, yeah, that seems like maybe a first step. And, you know, I, I've mentioned before, they were always digging up the streets to fix the pipes. And, but whenever they would be paving a new street, I would always say, well, shouldn't they fix all the pipes underneath it yes. before they pave it? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and it seemed like they never did. No. Um, so yeah, it seems to me that some strategic public investment in those areas would be a great first step. Uh-huh. It is, it is maddening to people not in the system. And it's maddening to people in the system too, that they don't, they don't do that. But it's uh, two different parts of government often not really working together. And the thing is with a water pipe, sometimes you can just leave it be and it'll be good for 20 years, which is how long, you know, if you're, if you're building a road on clay, you don't know how long it's going to last anyway, often 20 years is a, is a good amount of time. Um, maybe you can just save some money and take your take your shot. Um, yeah, it's very frustrating. I'm not familiar with the soils in Jackson, but if you're telling me that, I mean, it makes sense that there is a lot of clay there because Jackson itself is kind of an outwash of northern watersheds uh, ending up in this, you know, great outwash. Of course, it's going to be a lot of yeah 
No, the Yazoo Clay. The Yazoo Clay is notorious, and they were like, "Why did they put Jackson on the worst soil, like in the whole state? They put the capital (laughs) there." Yeah, well, we could ask that. We could ask why did we expand the city three times on this horrible clay instead of just making. I mean, the thing about a pipe in the ground, a pipe that's been in the ground 120 years, if you don't disturb it is not likely to go bad anytime soon. It's one of those, it's the Lindy principle from uh, Taleb talks about this, where, you know, if something has existed for 120 years, it's likely to, it's more likely to exist for another 120 years than something that is brand new or something that hasn't been disturbed. So there's a certain inertia to it, but yeah. Is there anything else, Amanda? Otherwise I want you to uh, tell me how you say your last name. Cause as a Minnesotan, I would probably say it differently than the way you would say it. Yeah, it's Lenata. Lenata. Okay. It's Italian. <laughs> oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. My husband's family has Italian roots and French Louisiana, all, all of the milieu that is South Louisiana. My final thought is just kind of what I've referenced before is that relationships are going to be the key to this, just like in your work and my work and in Jackson, because we can't deal with these problems. We can't deal with the race issues until individual hearts are changed. And certainly the church has a role to play with that. But I think each one of us has a role to play because, you know, we have racism in Louisiana. I'm sure you have it there. It's everywhere. So we have to look at the humanity of the people around us, that these are human beings. And I'm a person of faith, so I see them as image bearers of Christ. And I think that change in how we go about our day can be huge. So that's my hope for Jackson. You know, like I said, so many people have given up on it, but I was always hopeful for the city, even though I recognize it has serious issues, but I always was a champion for Jackson and for Mississippi. I truly came to love the state of Mississippi. You know, it's curious in the South, I guess, Louisiana and Mississippi are always uh, jostling for 49th and 45th. So there's there's a competition of, oh, or you know, at least we're ahead of Mississippi or, oh, at least we're ahead of Louisiana. Whenever I tell people here that I lived in Mississippi for so many years, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I have found it equally delightful and beautiful of a place. <laughs> And and in yeah. in Minnesota, you know, the Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana are often the butt of our uh, right. "we're better than everybody else" jokes. Right. And the more time I've spent in those places, the more I've come to recognize how those jokes are not only misplaced, but they're missing out on a lot of beauty. They really are. Exactly. So yeah, I I am will always be one of Jackson's staunchest defenders. Um, and as well as Mississippi. So I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to, to be with you today. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Amanda. So nice to talk to you. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. 